Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. third and greatest provision that God has given us in the spirit to deal with the inner conflict and turmoil that we have in our lives is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what he begins to address as he assures us that we're not in the flesh but in the spirit in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the Spirit of God dwells in all who receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Everyone who is born of the Spirit has the Spirit of God living inside of him. In order to graphically illustrate that, we need to take a, a look again at our diagram on the board and add to this inward man the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that we realize that this is God living in us. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is actually God living inside of us. And the promise that he gives us in relationship to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit follows in the next few verses. In verse 10, he says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You see, it is the Spirit of God who put to death that old person you were. It's the Spirit of God who created this brand new person that you are. It's the Spirit of God who gives life to that new spirit being that has been made. So it's the Spirit who gives life inside of this body in which this flesh still dwells. And even though the body is a mortal body and will return one day again to the dust, and even though that body contains the element of the flesh, that sinful nature that's rebellious against God, the spirit is life and righteousness inside. Now, of course, verse 11 is the key to the power of the spirit. And let's read it together. It says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that means live in you, be at home in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, or literally make alive, your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. This is such a tremendous promise. The same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, that spirit that entered into his body that raised up Christ Jesus out of that tomb on the third day, that same spirit is now living inside of you. The Lord wants us to understand the power, the resurrection power that is, is available to us by the indwelling of this spirit. And so he emphasizes the fact that it's the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead. Now let's consider for a moment what resurrection power really means. If you consider all the sources of power in the world, if you think about the power for instance, in our military force. And it's unbelievable, it's awesome what a nuclear power can do in nuclear weapons. If you think of the, the power in our economic system, the power of the economy of our nation and the world economy, or you think of power in political terms, the political power of the United States as a superpower in the world, for instance. You think of all of this sort of power and you add it all together or even the power of nature itself, the power in that devastating hurricane that swept through South Florida, the power in the earthquakes, the Rock India, the power in the floods in the Midwest, the power of natural disaster. Add all of that power together, 
whatever you can conceive of as being powerful, add it all together and ask this one question. Has all of that power ever been able to raise one person from the dead? Not one person has ever been raised from the dead by all the natural power we can conceive of. And yet what he's telling us here in this verse is that that spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead lives in you for a very specific reason. Read it again with me, please, in verse 11. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or literally make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Now it's important that we understand the term mortal body here. I'm going to go ahead and put the representation of the body on the board in this circle here because it's within this same body that we have both the nature of the flesh dwelling represented by this outside triangle and the new person that we are in Christ living and now we've added to that something else. We've added the Holy Spirit of God living inside that new person. And it's all within this mortal body. Now, the reason he calls it a mortal body is because it is subject to death. Anything that is referred to as being mortal is subject to die. It is capable of dying, of experiencing death. And certainly, these physical bodies that we live in will not go on eternally. They will, in fact, die and return, as God says, to the dust, to the elements of the earth from which it was taken. That's a mortal body. So what is it that the Spirit, in all of his power, is going to do? He is going to make alive this mortal body. Now, many people have the idea that that refers only to a future resurrection. They get the idea that really what he's talking about here is that day when you die, when this body returns back to the elements of the earth, that God is going to give you a new glorified body, and that's true. As a matter of fact, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he already has a glorified body prepared for you, made without hands, reserved for you in the heavenlies. There is already a glorified body waiting for you to inhabit the real person you are. This new creature that you are is going to live in that glorified body. But this does not, this promise of verse 11 does not refer to that. It refers to what the Spirit is going to do with this body, this body that is subject to death, this body in which the principle of sin still dwells, this body which is subject to the dysfunction of that sin. And the promise is that the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, living in this mortal body, is now going to put this mortal body into action is actually going to bring supernatural life into this very same physical body. What it really means to say here is that the life of Christ communicated to us by the breath of the Spirit is actually going to be lived out through this sin-cursed mortal body. So that when I extend my hand to reach out to you, it is not just me, but it's the life of Christ flowing through me that's reaching out to you. When I open my mouth to speak words to you, it's not just my words that are being formed, but because of the power of the Spirit, it's the words of God through Christ himself being formed to speak to you and to address you. You see, this is what the promise is. The Holy Spirit will make me come alive with the life of Christ, regardless and in spite of this sin-cursed mortal body. So this is a promise of power a promise of power in the spirit that will actually put to death the deeds of the body, as we'll see here in a moment, that will actually take over the flesh, if you will, that will set the flesh aside and manifest the true character of who God has made us to be in Christ to the world around us. Now let's see if we can get just a little bit of a personal flavor on this with a story that I want to share with you about a good friend of mine that I worked with years ago together. He was an associate pastor that I trained and worked with, and he went through a particularly difficult time, a terrible time, as a matter of fact. Just about the time he was getting ready to be ordained in the ministry, he had what psychologists would refer to as a nervous breakdown. That is, he literally fell apart. 
He found out, by the way, at the same time that he had a very serious disease called lupus. It's a disease, of, kind of an autoimmune disease that affects the bones and the joints and the body and so on. It's a very painful kind of experience. And he was going through the stress of going into the ministry and being ordained. My friend's name is Curtis. He doesn't mind me sharing this, by the way. In fact, he's asked me to share this story. One morning, about uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, I received a call from his wife saying, you've got to come. Curtis has lost it altogether. I myself had gone through some surgery and was walking around on crutches, my knee in a cast, and I really didn't feel like going out, but she was so insistent and so urgent. She said, I've got to take my young child, our young boy, and leave because Curtis has lost it altogether. So I thought, okay, I'll go. I went over to Curtis's house, and I walked in, in his, I hobbled in on crutches into his apartment, and sure enough, there's my friend Curtis standing on the coffee room table eating the fat from the steak that he had the night before and quoting some mismatch of Old Testament scripture about the fat thereof belongs to the Lord and telling me that as he ate this, it was going to turn into holy oil that would ooze through the pores of his body and cleanse him. And I thought to myself, my word, Curtis has lost it altogether. What am I going to do with my brother Curtis here? How am I going to get him to the hospital without losing it altogether? Here I am on crutches. There's no way I'm going to carry Curtis to the hospital. What am I going to say to him? And while I was in prayer, hobbling over to the couch in disbelief, watching my friend go crazy, he proceeded to tell me that he had already had seven showers that morning. I said, seven showers? He said, yes, that's why my wife Ann was so upset with me because I used all the towels in the bathroom. I said, what are you taking seven showers for? He says, I'm so dirty. And a little light bulb began to click on in my mind, and I began to recognize what my friend Curtis really needed. What he needed was cleansing in the power of the spirit of that sin-cursed mortal body of his. And the Lord led me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read this the way I read it that morning. As I told my friend Curtis, I said, Now, Curtis, you obviously know that this is not normal, what you're doing here. Oh, yeah, I know that. And I said, Well, I'm, I'm going to have to speak into your life here, brother, very seriously and very quickly. So I want you to read something with me. I want to read something to you. I want you to listen. Will you listen to it? Yes, I'll listen. So he sat down. And I opened his Bible that was lying there next to him on the couch, and I opened the Bible, and I said, Curtis, I want to read out of Ephesians chapter 1, and this is the way I read it to him, starting in verse 3. I said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed Curtis with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen Curtis in him before the foundation of the world that Curtis should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated Curtis unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made Curtis accepted in the beloved, in whom Curtis has redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward Curtis in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto Curtis the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also Curtis has obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, I didn't know exactly what to expect as I was reading. When I got to that point, I looked up, and I looked at my friend Curtis, and I looked him in the face, and I could begin to see the tears streaming down his eyes, and down his cheeks. And it began, to, it began to sink into my soul that the power of the gospel was working in my brother, Curtis. 
that the new man that he was was hearing the power of the Spirit speak life into him. And I asked him at that time, I said, Curtis, you've got your choice, brother. You can either believe what's true about you and that the Spirit of God is working in you now to set you free, or you can go on being crazy, whatever you want to do. Curtis looked at me and he said, I want to be made whole. I want to be well. I want to believe who I am. And we prayed together. Curtis got up, got dressed, came back out, and began a journey of learning who he was in Christ and the power of the Spirit working in him to transform his mind. I have to tell you that Curtis did finally wind up in the Colorado State Mental Hospital several years later. But he went in the capacity of a chaplain to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who were struggling like he himself had struggled. He did not go as a patient. Why? Because of the power of the gospel worked out in reality by the power of the Spirit in the new man he was to overthrow the fleshly carnal mind. You see, this is the promise that he's given us. He's given us a promise of hope and power in the Spirit. There is no dysfunction. There is no problem. There is no difficult situation, relationally or personally, that the power, the resurrection power of the Spirit cannot deal with effectively. None whatsoever. Curtis began to explain that to others and continues even to this very day to proclaim the gospel that set him free to others. And that gospel, that good news of the power of the Spirit, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, renewing our mind, is what is here talked about in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The promise of power Let's read it again. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Now, Curtis had given me testimony that Jesus lived in him, that his spirit dwelled in him. And that morning I read Ephesians 1 to him. I trusted that testimony. I trusted the spirit working in Curtis to bring to life the reality of the word of God and what he says he's done for Curtis. And the promise is that if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead live in you, then that same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Now notice the conclusion of verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, if you keep on living after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall be caused to live. Now, at this point, I think it's important for us to consider this conclusion that he's drawn based on the fact that we have freedom in the Spirit from condemnation, freedom from the law of sin and death, based on the fact that we have the mind of Christ, that that mind of Christ has been given to us, that we have a brand new way and potential of thought and thinking and believing. And based on the fact that we have all the supernatural resurrection power resonant within the Spirit of God living inside of us, he draws a conclusion. He says, therefore, therefore, brethren, we are no longer debtors to the flesh. Even though this flesh is powerful, even though this fleshly nature, this carnal mind that wars against the gospel is powerful in us, we are under no obligation whatsoever to this flesh. We do not have to continue in our dysfunction. We do not have to continue whining about our woundedness. We do not have to continue feeling sorry for ourselves, feeling helpless, feeling incompetent, feeling inadequate. We do not have to continue any longer running around thinking of ourselves as being worthless. We are no longer debtors to the flesh. We are not in bondage to the flesh. Why? Because we have been set free in the spirit. 
because we have been given a new mind of the Spirit, because we have the power of the Spirit. He explains further that the reason we're not in bondage to the flesh is because if we keep on living after the flesh, if we keep on living out our life in a lifestyle according to this flesh, we're going to keep on experiencing death, death in our relationships, death in our own minds to our own person in the form of neurosis and psychosis and psychosomatic disorders, death in our relationship with God, a separation between us and him. To keep on living after the flesh in the natural carnal mind leads to nothing but death. But if we, through the Spirit, that same Spirit that's given us the freedom, the mind, and the power, if we, through the Spirit, do put to death the deeds of the body, we shall be literally, he says, caused to live. Now, it's this that we want to turn our attention to now, what it means to put to death the deeds of the body and be caused to live in the Spirit. I sometimes refer to this as the how-tos of Christianity. Don't, don't get confused when I say the how-tos. I'm not talking about how to save yourself, how to improve yourself, how to turn over a new leaf, how to be a better Christian. <clears throat> Excuse me, remember back in Romans chapter 7, it's very clear that we can't do that. No matter how much right and wrong we know, and no, much how, no matter how much willpower we exert, there's no way possible for us to change ourselves. So when I say the how-tos here, I'm not talking about how you're going to turn over a new leaf. I'm talking rather about how to let God, through his spirit, change you from the inside out. And here we're given a key to that, right here in this verse, verse 13, when he says, if you, through the spirit. Now there are two things that we need to keep in mind here. There are two responsibilities that we need to focus our attention on, two particular things that, that you and I need to be aware of every time we deal with any issue or situation in our life. We need to, first of all, look at our own responsibility, and then secondly, we need to look at God's responsibility. You see, he says, if you, that's the believer, through the Spirit, that's God, do put to death the deeds of the body. You see, there's a, there's a combination effect here. It's your responsibility with God's responsibility. In order to understand this, I want to put you on the board here. You are going to work through the Spirit to actually put to death the deeds of the body. This is a negative approach, I realize, but follow through. We'll go on into the positive in a moment. This is a negative approach to not doing the dysfunctional things that we naturally do in our flesh. Let's just take a few examples so you know what I mean. We would naturally, when someone disappoints us, hate them and plot to seek revenge against them. How are we going to not do that? We naturally, when we feel insecure, want to take an edge off of our insecurity by numbing our feelings through such things as drugs, alcohol, sex, overeating, etc. How are we going to keep from the overuse and, and abuse of such substances? We naturally, when we ourselves fail, want to blame other people and feel sorry for ourselves. How are we going to keep from naturally throwing pity parties for ourselves? You see, these are the negative things we don't want to get into, the negative things that we know better than to let ourselves get into. We don't want to get into it, so how are we going to keep from doing that? Well, he says, you have a responsibility, and the Spirit of God has a responsibility, and we need to understand what those are. All your responsibility can be summarized and crystallized in one word. That one word, Jesus described, remember, to the multitude that he fed, he said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So I'm going to use the word, the one word, faith. Your responsibility in every circumstance, in every situation, is to believe what God says is true. The highest duty of man is to exercise faith before God, to trust him. Now, when you stop and think about it logically, there's really all we can do, isn't it? 
The only thing that this inward man can actually do, even though he's a brand new person, holy and without blame before God, the only thing he can really do to deal with his flesh is to trust the Spirit. That's really all he can do. Paul proves that to us back in Romans chapter 7 when he says by his own personal testimony, I try to do what's right. And when a Pharisee says, I try to do what's right, you can best believe he's doing the best job possible. But he said, when I try to do what's right and I do what's wrong, he failed in it. You see, all he was forced to do was to back off in faith to trust God to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. So our responsibility is always crystallized in this one word. In every circumstance, in every situation, we've got to start with faith. By the way, it's this faith we start with that gives us access into grace in which we stand. It's faith that unlocks a floodgate of God's grace into our life. As soon as we believe what the Word of God says is true about us, we exercise the flooding abundant grace of God in our lives. Now, what's the Spirit's responsibility? His responsibility is power. Our responsibility is to believe. His responsibility is to do it. And these two go hand in glove together. Let me give you some concrete examples of this so you know what I'm talking about. First of all, let's take a negative situation. Let's take a a sinful fleshly thing that we don't want to do anymore. Let's, let's take something like losing our temper. That's fairly innocuous, except for us rageaholics. We just lose our temper at the drop of hat, and we want to quit doing that. Now that we're a Christian, we want to quit losing our temper all the time. What are we going to do to quit losing our temper? Our responsibility is to believe. Believe what? Believe all the things we've been studying about who we really are. Believe that we are, in fact, one with Christ, that we are this brand-new person that shares the characteristics of Christ, that has the freedom of Christ from the law of sin and death, and that has the mind of Christ. We are to start thinking of ourselves as dead indeed under rage and alive unto God, like Christ Jesus. We are to, first of all, believe. Now, that faith in who we are sets us up for the next exercise of faith, and that is in what God wants us doing. I have to digress at this point just somewhat to explain a problem that I've seen in, across the board in my counseling experience with Christians who are trying to quit doing things that are wrong. Invariably, I find them trying to quit doing things that they think are wrong and that God doesn't want them doing, but really are not what God's concerned about at all. What I mean by that is, generally speaking, I find little baby Christians who do not understand the milk of the word we've been talking about concerning our position in Christ get all wrapped up in externals of Christianity. They think that Christians ought not to do these things, and you can just make up a list of any sort you want to, and you'll find that 90% of the things that most Christians think that Christians ought not to do are not even in the Bible. They're not even in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, you'll find people bringing in cultural preferences and swearing that that's what God intended. One of the most recent things for those of you who were old enough to pass through the hippie era in the 60s one of the things I remember men talking about uh, in a Christian sense, in a religious sense, was those long-haired folks. You know, those folks with long hair? And, on what, and how they went about defining what was long was down to the shoulders or over the ears or something of that nature. There were long-haired folks. It says, now, God doesn't want you to have long hair. If you're a Christian, you need to cut your hair. As a matter of fact, there's been more than one argument in short circles about haircuts. Did you know that? Now, if it's not long hair on the men, it's short hair on the women. It's whether the women actually cut their hair or not. And I'm serious about this. We, some of you might think, well, that's a strange thing to argue about, but some people had life and death struggles over that kind of thing. And they go to the Scriptures and they try to prove from the Scriptures that God wants a flat top as opposed to long hair on a man. Well, you see, a Christian 
a baby Christian that gets caught up in that kind of an argument or dispute might want to cut his hair for the wrong reason. Not because God told him it was wrong to have long hair, but so that he will gain the acceptance of men in the group. So he might want to cut his hair to gain approval from man. Now, unless that Christian, that baby Christian, can exercise faith in what God is telling him, unless that Christian can exercise faith that God is telling him to cut his hair, for him to cut his hair to get the approval of man is sin. It's dysfunctional. And it will create emotional disturbance within him, no matter what the opinion of man is. You see, this faith that I'm talking about that's your responsibility comes in two parts. The first part is to believe that you are worthy because of what God has made you to be, with or without long hair. The second part is for you to believe that you're hearing what God wants you to do about such issues as whether you cut your hair or not. You see, most of our lives, just about everything in our life, 90% at least, of what we choose to do or not do on a daily basis is not directly addressed in the scriptures. You realize that? The Bible doesn't tell you what kind of house to live in. It doesn't tell you what city to live in. The Bible doesn't tell you what kind of car to drive. It doesn't tell you what kind of job to do. The Bible doesn't tell you what your occupation is or what it should be. These are, are decisions. It doesn't even tell you how many kids you ought to have. It doesn't tell you who to marry. I mean, these are serious decisions in our lives, and the Bible doesn't tell you anything about that. So how are you going to know what God wants if you can't read it in the Bible? Now, some people do the hunt and peck method, you know, and say, okay, I wonder whether I ought to get married or not. And so they, they open the Bible, and they point, and they say, hmm, thus saith God. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. Hmm, I wonder what that means. And I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Yeah, I probably ought to get married. That's probably what he means. That's, I, I would imagine that, especially when he talks about the heat of my spirit. That, that probably has something to do with getting married. So I probably ought to go ahead and get married. I don't know, though, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Maybe he's holding me back from getting married. You see how you can go back and forth? That's not, a, that's not using the Scriptures. That's abusing the Scriptures. It's taking it out of context. That's the hunt and peck method for what the Bible says we ought to do. And we're going to talk more about this in later sessions, but I want to tell you just right up front, ahead of time, that the Spirit of God is given to us, lives inside of us with this power to make us be like Christ to others. The Spirit of God is there to lead us and direct us in all that we do or think or say. So he, we are going to have to learn to trust Him. That is, we're going to have to learn to exercise faith, not only in who He's made us to be, but faith in what He wants us to do especially about those, quote, doubtful issues in our lives, which are really just those things the Bible doesn't address directly. Those are doubtful issues. And so we're going to have to exercise faith every day because you're going to have to make decisions every day what you ought to do, where you ought to go, how you ought to do your work, how you ought to relate to your family. And while the Bible will give us general information about such things, it doesn't specifically tell us what we ought to do concerning each one of these things. So on a daily basis, we're going to have to exercise faith as our responsibility. Now, here's the beauty of it. When you exercise faith, God exercises power. The Holy Spirit's job, you recall, is power. And his power doesn't just wait for you to exercise faith. It actually produces the circumstances and situations necessary for you to exercise faith in. The Holy Spirit is in you, constantly leading you and directing you. In fact, the very next verse, verse 14, talks about this. We're going to come back and deal with this a little later, but for right now, since we're here, just look at what this promise is. 
for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You see, the Spirit gives us power by leading us, first of all, by telling us what to do. He is always leading us and directing us in our life. So he gives us not only wisdom, but he gives us the power to do what he tells us to do as well. Now, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 to continue this thought on the how-tos. I want you to see your relationship to the Spirit in a general way. We'll come back to Romans chapter 8 a little later in another study. But I, w I want us to look now at Galatians chapter 5 concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. In the first verse of chapter 5, he tells us, he gives us this admonition, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Notice what he's calling us to. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, or the freedom, of the Spirit. I want you to make this connection now. We're not talking about a completely different subject just because we switched over here to Galatians chapter 5. We're talking about how to live a powerful life in the grace of God and what he's telling us in his, in his practical section here in the letter to the Galatians is that we are to stand fast in the liberty, the freedom of the Spirit, the freedom from condemnation by believing who we are in Christ, the freedom from the law by listening in faith to the Holy Spirit lead our lives. Stand fast in liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now let me define this yoke of bondage for you. It's real important that we define this yoke of bondage. There are two forms of bondage that are equally as binding. There is a secular bondage that is terribly binding and a religious bondage that is binding. Both are equally binding. The secular bondage we think of in terms of the bondage of dysfunction or addiction, uh, the outward manifestation of death as a result of sin in our lives. And we think, well, we kind of deserve that because we were, sin we were sinning, and so that's the bondage we get from sinning. But there's another kind of bondage that is also a result of sin that does not appear to be a result of sin, and that's the bondage of religion. And let me define for you the difference between religion and Christianity. Not many people understand the difference between religion and Christianity. Christianity is not just another religious system, folks. Christianity is radically different from all other religions. True biblical Christianity is not just another religious system because, you see, religion is man's efforts to gain God's approval by the rituals that he goes through. He goes through certain little rituals and he's hoping to please the deity, whatever he conceives that deity to be. He's hoping to get blessed by that God that he's praying to and performing these rituals for. That's religion. Religion is man's efforts to reach up and manipulate God to bless him. Christianity, on the other hand, is simply receiving God's blessings by faith receiving what the God of heaven has told us he's already done for us in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves by faith. Christianity is not a matter of trying to earn God's blessings. It's a matter of receiving by faith God's blessings. Just as my friend Curtis received by faith God's blessings and it radically transformed his life to serve God, so that is what Christianity is about. Now, there is a religious bondage that we sometimes fall into that Paul is particularly concerned about warning the Galatian believers about, and that religious bondage is that you can get yourself in a yoke of bondage where you will think that you are going to do something to get God to love you more. You are going to do something, you're going to perform some ritual or some service in which you're going to receive more blessings from God. And this is what he's particularly concerned about in the churches of Galatia, the issue of the day was that of circumcision. Notice what he says here in verse 2. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. In order for you to understand this, you need to know that what was being taught in those Galatian churches was that except a man be circumcised, he can't go to heaven. 
Now, that's a little difficult for us to understand. In fact, it's a little uncomfortable for us to even talk about such a thing as circumcision publicly. But in his day, it was a major issue because, you see, circumcision was a ritual that God had given to Israel as a sign of his covenant promises and blessings to them. And the Jews came into the Galatian churches and said, now, you folks can't just believe on Jesus and be pleasing to God. You're going to have to get circumcised. So to help us understand how this religious bondage of Paul's day spills over into our life today, let's put some other things in the place of circumcision here. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this, except you quit lying, you can't go to heaven? Have you ever heard somebody say like, something like this, except you start going to church, or except you particularly go to my church, you can't get to heaven? Or except you be baptized, you can't go to heaven? Or except you speak in tongues, you can't go to heaven? Have you ever heard that? You bet you have. Because you see, the same religious bondage that was present in the first century is here today in American Christianity, full-blown. We're making the same mistake the Galatian churches made as well today. So this warning is just as relevant to us today. Notice what Paul said. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. What this means is, as soon as you start trying to manipulate God to get him to bless you, effectively what you say is, Jesus, I don't need you. You don't have anything to do with me now. I appreciate the fact you died on the cross for my sins, you understand, but right now I'm busy manipulating the Father to get him to bless me. Christ shall profit you nothing, he said. Read on with me in verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. If you submit yourself to one point of a legal system in trying to clean up your life and trying to behave yourself to get God to love you and bless you more, if you submit yourself to only one point of it, you're responsible to do the whole thing. You've got to do the whole thing because, verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. You have left off grace as a lifestyle. You have quit walking in the grace of God, and now you're back under the law again, and you're carrying this heavy burden of the law, and you're a debtor to do the whole law. Now, in strong contrast to that kind of bondage, in strong contrast to that, we have the liberty of Christ. Whether it's secular bondage or religious bondage, we have the liberty in Christ. And we describe that, that is described for us in the next two verses. Let's read those together. He says in verse 5, For we, that's us believers, through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works itself out by love. Now, in strong contrast to this effort to keep the law, Paul says that we're going to have to operate in faith. What's our responsibility again? Faith. Look at it in verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, do wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. But you know what the most important word in this verse is, really? It's not the word faith, even though I'm using this verse to emphasize that right now. But really, the most important word in this verse is wait. Wait. We Christians become real impulsive sometimes. We like to clean up our life right away. I can remember agonizing over certain habits and problems and difficulties I've had in my life and saying, God, why don't you clean me up? Why don't you change me from the... I know you can change me. All you'd have to do is just snap your fingers and I'd be changed immediately. Why don't you change me so I can be different? Hurry up, God, you're late. And what I would wind up doing is really wanting to be changed for the wrong reason. You see, what gets us into problems is we want our life changed so we'll be more appealing to other people and we can win their approval. Really, what we're trying to do is fit in our religious peer group when we're trying to conform to what other people expect about us. And God doesn't play that game with us. What does he tell us to do here? We, through the Spirit, do what? Wait for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness is being cleaned up. The hope of righteousness 
is the Holy Spirit taking over this new person you are, energizing it to take over the flesh and work itself out in this mortal body of yours. We wait for the hope of righteousness. How? By faith. Again, our responsibility is faith. God's responsibility is power to do it. Listen, folks, if he doesn't change you, there's no way you can change yourself. You've got to rely on him to change you and him alone. We, through the Spirit, do wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Why? Look at verse 6 with me. For in Jesus Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ, isn't it? There's that phrase, in Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision, what you do, avails anything, nor uncircumcision, what you don't do. Now, this is a radical statement. In fact, in the religious scene today in America, it might thought, be thought to be heresy if it were not right here in the Bible. Because you know what he's saying, really? He's saying it's not what you do or don't do that counts with God. Now think about that a minute. Our religious nature tells us that the most important thing is for us to clean up our life and do something quick to manipulate God to get him to like us and to bless us. But what the Word of God says right here is that's not what counts. It's not what you do or don't do that counts. Why? Because your job is not the power. That's God's job. Your job is the faith. And if you're going to do anything at all that's worthy, that's good, it's going to have to come through the Spirit working in you. You see, it's not what you do or don't do that counts with God. But what counts with Him? Read the last of verse 6. But faith. Back to your responsibility again. What's God waiting on you to do? Trust him. What's God want out of you more than anything else? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The just shall keep on living by faith. And Paul even warns us further in Romans 14, 23. Whatsoever is not of faith, anything that's done without faith is sin, no matter how good it looks on the outside. Our responsibility always boils down to trusting what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves and trusting in what we think he wants us to do for others. Now, one other verse here, or one, uh, two other verses in the same chapter we need to look at before we close, verses 16 and 17. He says, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You see, what he's calling us to is a reliance upon the Spirit and his power that is working in us. That's what he means by walk in the Spirit. I'm walking right now one step at a time, and that's how we walk in the Spirit, one step at a time, believing that he wants us doing this on this occasion, and then the next step is taken, and then the next step is taken, and every step of the way we are exercising faith, trusting him. That's how we walk in the Spirit. Our responsibility is to trust him with every decision and every move in our life. That's how we walk in the Spirit. And the promise is this. If we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh because it's the power of the Spirit that overcomes the flesh. Look at verse 17. For the Spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh, flesh against the Spirit. These two are contrary one to another so that you cannot keep on doing whatever you want to do. Now, Follow through with me on this. It's very important. The Spirit of God living inside of you is always leading you to deal with this flesh. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the insight. He's the one with the plan. And he's the one that gets the glory for it. Our responsibility is to trust him. First of all, to trust him to do what he said he's done in making us a brand new person. 
And secondly, to trust him with where he wants us to go, what he wants us to speak, what he wants us to do. As we trust him, his responsibility is the power to do in us what he wants done. The beauty of this is that God works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, God is always at work in us through his spirit both to want to do and to do by his power what he wants us to do. What's our responsibility? Trust that. Trust that God is working in us. Believe that he's working in us. Exercise faith that he's leading us continually, that he's guiding us. I've heard story after story of people tell me about things that have happened in their life that appear to be coincidental. They just happen to run into their future mate at a certain social gathering, or they just happen to be on the scene when somebody really needed their help, or they just happen to be on vacation in a certain location where they needed to gain information. You see, all of this we, we naturally think is just circumstance, but it's not. It is the active work of the Holy Spirit and his power working in us, leading us and directing us in connection with his plan for our life. What's our responsibility in that? Walk in the Spirit by faith, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Our responsibility is to trust him daily with our lives. May the Lord give us the grace to believe on him every day. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 